Could anything be worse than having your home and all your possessions destroyed by burning sulfur from heaven? Could anything be worse than that? That's what we talked about last week. Actually, yes. You flee the sanctuary you've been offered by angels, and you're now living in a cave. Your daughters get you drunk, not once, but twice, and sleep with you. This passage, while not explicitly condemning drunkenness or incest, doesn't have to. Every Israelite reader would have known these were sins, heinous sins to be avoided. We should not be surprised, though, to find Lot's daughters acting this way. They'd been raised in Sodom, exposed to all the wicked, vile practices of that society. They'd been engaged to marry men of Sodom who laughed at their father-in-law when he asked them to leave. They'd apparently absorbed the full culture. His daughters were sodomites to the core. And just because Lot may not have been aware of what happened these two nights, he is not innocent. He raised his daughters this way. As bad as this is, it doesn't end here. Their children, their descendants, the Moabites and the Ammonites, will be ongoing enemies of God's people for generations. God's people, the sons of Abraham, Lot's uncle. It mentions in Numbers 25 about the Moabites, it says, while Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshipped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Baal was, was the God that was most tempting over the generations to the Israelites. Constant distraction, thrown in the flesh for them. And then for the Ammonites, Leviticus 20 mentions, the Lord spoke to Moses, say to the Israelites, any Israelite or alien residing in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech must be put to death. The people of the country are to stone him. I will turn against that man and cut him off from his people because he gave his offspring to Molech, defiling my sanctuary and profaning my holy name. Molech, the God of the Ammonites, to which they offered up their babies. You see that even some of the kings of Israel did this later on, offering up their children to Molech. And yet God, of course, sees their end. The prophet Zephaniah said, I have heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites who have taunted my people and threatened their territory. Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, the God of Israel. Moab will be like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit in a perpetual wasteland. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The remainder of my nation will dispossess them. The vile acts in the cave on these nights create pain and suffering and hardship for God's people for generations. The question we've got to ask how in the world did Lot end up like this? How could a person be brought so low? Well, what we usually find is there's choices. 
There's little choices. Choices made along the way in life. Cracks develop in the foundation before we see the structure fall. We're going to take a look back at Lot's story. Learn how he got where he is today in our message and what lessons we can learn from it. We first see Lot in Genesis 11. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So they traveled several hundred miles from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran on their way to Canaan, but they don't get there. Terah stops there. He ends up dying there. They're there several years. So Lot is part of this party. Abram is his uncle. So after many, many years then, in Genesis 12, Abraham, Abram gets the call of God. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Lots of part of this. goes on to say, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. So again, Lot's now under the protection of Abram, and he gets to enjoy the blessings that will come from God's call on Abram's life. They travel over 400 miles from Haran to the land of Canaan. Things are looking pretty good for Lot right now. Things are looking pretty good. In fact, things are so good that they need to separate. When we get into Genesis 13, we see, it says, Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together. For they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we're relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So, what does Lot do? It says, Lot looked out and saw the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zor. Zor, hmm, that's where we found him, right? After he left Sodom. It was well watered everywhere, like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil and sinning immensely against the Lord. So Lot has received tremendous blessing just by being with Abram, being part of the covenant blessing that God is giving Abram. But yet the land cannot support them both, so there's conflict. Abram initiates and offers 
Lot the first choice. It was Abram's right. He's the patriarch. He's the one that could have chosen. Yet he offers Lot the choice. And what does Lot do? Well, Lot does probably what all of us would do. He looks out and he says, that's the best land right there. And I don't just want part of it. I'm going to take this whole valley, this whole valley there. Oh, yeah, I've heard about those people in Sodom and that they're really not good folks, but I'm not going to live in Sodom. I'll live just kind of near Sodom. I'm not going to really be in there, right? And besides, there's all, it's, it's, we do the cost-benefit on this thing. I mean, there's so much good with this. That'll take care of itself. So he does it. Sight. Walking by sight. Again, easy to throw stones. We probably do the same thing. Yet he doesn't really offer it back to Abram. He doesn't show, doesn't show the praise. He sees. He takes, regardless of the danger. So then we go on in Genesis 14, and we've got the battle of the kings. You know, the four kings from the north come down and take on the five kings from the valley of the plain, which include Sodom, Gomorrah, and Zor. It was called Bela at the time, okay? And two other towns in the valley. Well, where do we, what's up with Lot? Well, it says, the four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living where? In Sodom. And they went on. We were near Sodom. Now we're in Sodom. All right. Well, as we know, Abram comes to the rescue. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men, born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. Praise God. There's this miraculous victory with, with just a handful of men, basically, that Abram has, and God gives him victory over these four kings who are ruling the area. And he gets Lot back. I'm sure Lot was grateful. This could have been a great opportunity for a reset here, maybe, for Lot. And yet, it's right back in where he came, right back to Sodom. So which brings us to last week's message. And we see that where Lot's story has come to this point, the destruction of Sodom simply reveals his character. And like we've heard so many times, trials, hardships, stresses of life really don't make a character so much as they reveal a character. So what does this reveal about Lot? Well, Lot is sitting in the gateway of Sodom. Usually that means that's a person of prominence in the community. So not only is he not outside of Sodom, he's in Sodom, and he's a leading citizen of Sodom. He's a recognized leader. Well, what has that got him? Well, it's got him to the point where when he has visitors that come, he, instead of letting the mob take his visitors, he offers his daughters to them in some twisted way of thinking that was the better thing to do. He offers his daughters. And then when he's instructed to leave, he goes to the guys who are going to be marrying his daughters that presumably he said was okay to marry him, and they scoff and laugh at him. They're not God-fearing. Angels are trying to get him to go. Does Lot say, yeah, boom, let's go? No, he hesitates. 
And lastly, when they tell him to flee, don't look back, head to the mountains, of course, his wife looks back, turn to the pillar of salt, but he negotiates and says, ah, I can't do that. Can I just go to this little town nearby here? And they say, all right, go, but we can't do anything until you do. A little town, which is then called Zor, which means it's little or insignificant. Okay, again, he, he's really only afraid. He wasn't afraid to live in Sodom all that time. No, he just absorbed it. And yet, he's, he's afraid he's not going to make it. He's not going to be able to do what the angels tell him to do. So he still negotiates with them and ends up in a little town there. So all again, all this is simply revealed where Lot is. So the question is, did Lot really lose it all in the destruction of Sodom? Is that really when he lost it all? Or had he already lost what was most important? Had he already lost a true fear of God? D.L. Moody, 19th century American evangelist, said, Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. It would appear Lot was quite a success. Leading man in the community. House, lands, possessions, servants. It's quite the success, wasn't he? Was he? We're driving down the road. We stop at a light. There's a person on the corner there with a sign. And I don't know what you think. Sometimes I'm, I'm irritated. Sometimes I feel pity. Um, I don't think I ever think that person is a success. I think they're, maybe they're a failure, maybe they're just a victim of circumstance. But I don't ever think they're a success. But now let's consider a successful entrepreneur or sports athlete or, you know, celebrity, businessman, whatever it might be. By most all standards, they're successful. Are they? Are they successful at what matters? That really is Lot before the destruction and after the destruction. And there couldn't be a better passage to describe Lot than 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. It says, For no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with good sil- gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that ha- he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Literally and figuratively, this is lot. Funny thing is, of course, the second Peter, he describes Lot as a righteous man who's tormented by what goes on there. Why is he righteous? Well, I guess by default, um, he was spared. Abraham, you know, petitioned for the righteous. So by that, he is righteous. And his soul must have been different. In some respects, he was tormented, yet not enough to leave, apparently, 
and literally escapes through fire with nothing. Brothers and sisters, may this never be said of us. May our names never be able to be inserted in this passage. That we would experience loss and be saved, but we would have, have nothing to show for our time here on earth. So I'm indebted to Sheila Allowine. She wrote an excellent article a couple years ago on this passage, and she identified four sobering lessons from this passage. You know, and sometimes people just do things better than you could ever do yourself. So I'm just giving her credit on this, but she has four, four good lessons. First one is, don't underestimate the power of a sinful environment. That's maybe the duh one of this whole thing, right? Don't underestimate the power of a sinful environment. And of course, you know the patron saint verse of this whole thing is 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. How can we talk about this subject and not include this verse in here? Which is great because most of us claim this as a primary parenting verse, right? It's great for our kids. We all know this. But, 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 how well do we apply it to ourselves? What do I watch? What do I listen to? What do I read? Who do I associate with? We have 24-7 access to the best and the worst that the world has to offer. Nothing like they had back then. We've got it all right here. Who knows? Who in our lives knows how we spend our time, who we spend it with, whether it's literally or virtually. God help us if nobody knows that about our lives. I pray that each of us would have at least one person that knows who we're with. First John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. The lust from the flesh, it feels good. The lust of the eyes, I want it. Pride in one's possessions of just boasting about life, how great I am. It has always been this way. Back in the garden, it was the same three temptations. Adam and Eve. The tempter said, look, this is good for food. It'll taste good. It'll satisfy you. Look, it's desirable to look at. I want it. It's good for the eyes. It's desirable for obtaining wisdom. The boastful pride of life. Same thing when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. It's the same three things. The devil says, tell the stones to become bread. Jesus had been how many days without eating? 40 days, right? He's hungry. That would be really wonderful. That would taste really good. Second thing, the tempter says, I'll give you all these things. He shows them all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them all to you. Again, possessions, the eyes, I want it. And then the third thing, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. It's written angels will lift you up. That's a test. Show me you're powerful. Show everybody how powerful you are. And yet we know how Jesus responded to each one of those, right? As we must respond, as we must guard our hearts and minds, it is written. We must know God's word. Isn't that 
what advertising is all about? Isn't that what marketing is all about? Isn't that what social media is all about? To get us to be dissatisfied with our lives, so we must have something in any of these areas. Nothing's changed. So the first one, don't underestimate the power of a sinful environment. Two, choose faith, fear God, not your circumstances. Matthew 16, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? As we've seen, what choices did Lot make that showed he was walking by sight rather than by faith? Choosing to, to, to take the obvious of what looks good, what will satisfy me, what will build me up in society. Not necessarily, not necessarily wrong in themselves, but in relation to our walk with God, in relation to, to who he is. And they're just idols. They're just idols. And again, what do we see that makes us conclude that he fears God at all? He stays in a city all this time, in, even in torment, perhaps, but he stays there. And he, he wants their approval rather than the approval of God. And again, lest we, we be too quick to just focus on Lot and say, oh, I'd never be that way. Well, how would I answer those questions about my own life? How would, I, how would my life show that I'm walking by faith? not by sight. What would make those around me conclude that I fear God more than I fear men? Choose faith. Fear God, not your circumstances. The third thing is to choose humility. We back up a few verses, wrapped up the passage last week, and we see Abraham it says, early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain. He saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. What do you think Abraham is thinking as he sees this? Is Lot still alive? Is my nephew Lot still alive? Who knows how much they kept in contact? Does he, does he believe he's one of those righteous that will be saved? Lot, of course, is saved. He is alive, but only by the mercy of God and the intercession of Abraham. A question we cannot know the answer to, but I, I, just, I just really wonder... Why didn't Lot go back to Abraham? He's in a cave. Why couldn't he have just gone back to Abraham? Now, we don't know. The text doesn't say. I mean, he, he, he could have just been in shock and didn't think of it. I don't know. But the fact is that when the angels told him to head for the hills, they may have been referring to where they just come from. They just come from Abraham in that land. So he very well may have been saying, you know, head to the hills. 
the hill country to the west. Instead, Lot not only stays in the valley, he goes the other way. He goes east. He goes the opposite way to Zor. Abraham had been tremendously gracious to him. Lot had been blessed as part of the covenant that, that Abraham had with God. And Abraham had rescued him from the kings. And yet, what keeps him from going? And again, I don't know. You know maybe it isn't this at all, but when I think about us, don't we have those same issues in our lives when trials and hardships and bad things happen to us? What keeps us from going to people? What even keeps us from going to God? Is it our pride? We don't want people to know. We need to keep up appearances. Is it shame because of what's happened, what something's happened to us or we've done to ourselves? Is it just we're so ashamed, again, that we don't want people to know? Or, or we don't feel we can even go to God? That God will reject us? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God will never reject you. His wrath is all paid for on the cross through Christ. He waits like the father and the prodigal. that he runs to us. That's a lie of the devil. God is never that way if you're in Christ. But I found, I found, with humility, people respond generally in kind, especially those that care about you and that love you. So whether it's pride, shame, fear, we can all be tempted in those same things. But let's not be. Let's respond in faith rather than fear and humble ourselves. Fourth point, God's sovereignty and grace can bring good from our failures. God is able to bring good out of all our failures and foolish choices. There's no better example than the story of Ruth. Ruth 1 says, Naomi said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, This is one of the best speeches in all of Scripture. Ruth says, Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was from the tribe of Moab, the descendants of Lot's daughters. Yet she's a heroine in one of the Bible's most famous love stories. When her husband and father-in-law die, she is returning to the land of Judah with Naomi, where the sovereign hand of God guides her to meet Boaz, her kinsman redeemer. Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed, a grandson named Jesse, and a great-grandson named David, through whom Jesus the Messiah would come. Matthew 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, says an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. God, God indeed, had the last word on Lot's family. He will also have the last word in your life. What great hope this should give to every believer 
everyone who's repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. God knows our weaknesses, and yet he moves to rescue us from our own foolishness. And when we find ourselves at what we believe is the end of the world, he redeems and he restores and he takes what the enemy meant for evil and uses it for good. So in closing, I would just invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes for a final exhortation and benediction. From Jude, it says, But you, dear brothers and friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray, gracious God. Thank you for the precious promises that are in you. Lord, thank you that our lives are in your hands. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, which is not just for time past and time future, but for right now. You love us and you care for us. You are faithful. We give you all glory and honor and praise in your son's name. Amen.